Now on Documentary on News Talk, Rebel Prisoner explores the life of Seamus Kavanagh, a British Army soldier turned Irish volunteer who was interned in multiple prisons between 1916 and 1924. This is Rebel Prisoner. Rebel Prisoner begins with the mystery of a forgotten diary written over 100 years ago and what it tells us about its once anonymous author and the turbulent times in which it was written. The small, nameless notebook traces the experiences of a man who was active in Derry during the Irish revolutionary period of the early 1900s and leads us into a story of rebellion and internment. And so we begin with the discovery of a diary in the family home of a man called Michael Gallagher. I'm Michael Gallagher. I'm in the family home here in Derry, uh, in the city centre. When we moved into the house, my mother moved out in 1994, there was an old chest of drawers in the attic. And within that, there was a number of bits and pieces that had been left behind. And one of them, one of them was a driving licence of my father's, but the other thing was a very small brown diary. It's about three by two with a brown matte cover on it. It was written in pencil, very neatly written, and it appeared to be some sort of contemporaneous account of someone who was in, in prison around 1916. The strange thing is that all the entries seem to run in order on the right-hand side, and then there's additional information on the left-hand side as you read it, so it's hard to keep track. There's also a number of, of numbers on it, but immediately then, the next page you open on the right-hand side, it just grabs you because it says... Arrested about 1.45pm and going back to work. Taken to Bishop Street, dressed in prison clothes and placed in cell. No charge stated. Refused any communication with outside. And you just go, what is this? Where is this? You know, at the Bishop Street you think, yeah, there was a jail there. Is that, is that what this is? There's no name on it. Um, we, were, we were none the wiser as to who it might be or how you might even begin to try and find out where it had come from. Michael's father came into possession of the diary in the 1980s when he was storing books at home that had been donated as part of a local history archive. People could come into the house, look at books and take away whatever they wanted. But the diary remained, perhaps because it is just such a small item. Eventually, the diary ended up living in the attic for nearly 20 years until Michael found it in 1994. The thing that strikes you is that uh, there's no name at all on it, there's no address on it. So obviously if it was lost, no one would know who owned it. But then when you think of that more deeply, you think that's probably deliberate when you see the context of the document itself in terms of contemporaneous uh, account of their time at various prisons and, and, and travelling to various prisons and the way they were treated. Michael transcribed the diary and sent copies to academics in the hope of identifying the author and finding the family. They showed an interest in this unique notebook about the experience of an anonymous Irish volunteer in Derry in 1916, but were unable to provide a name, so the diary sat in Michael's home for another 20 years. I thought it was something, if I didn't do something about it, it, would, it could be lost. Uh, and I really did want it to go to the family, whoever owned it, because it, obviously it's, it's written, it's a very personal account in parts. And I thought that might have been important. In 2018, Michael scanned the diary, and this time he sent a copy to Dr Adrian Grant in the University of Ulster, McGee. I'm Dr Adrian Grant. I'm a lecturer in politics at Ulster University and a historian. It was a diary of a man who had been imprisoned 
and they had suspicions that it might be a man called Cavanaugh. At that time, I had just published a book on, on that period, and Seamus Cavanaugh had been sort of one of the central players in the book and in, in dairy republicanism. So I was really familiar with his handwriting, which meant that I kind of could do a bit of forensic investigation and comparing postcards he'd written to his family when he was in, interned. So it was pretty exciting. They come back and said, I know who it is. I said, well, how do you know that? He says, I recognise the handwriting, which I was, I said, come on, <laughs> you recognise the handwriting? <laughs> you know, you're on top of your game if you can identify, you know, people from that period from their handwriting. He says, no, but there's an exhibition on in the Terry Museum and there's postcards in it written by, as it turned out, James Kavanagh or Seamus Kavanagh. I realised then the significance, I suppose, in terms of the, historically of the individual, of his life. And then when I saw the references to a hunger strike, and then finally the clincher was uh, an address in Derry that I knew was the, the Cavanaugh home. So then the next question was, what do we do with it? And he said, look, I know a relative of Seamus Kavanaugh, who uh, is kind of the custodian within that family of all anything to do with Seamus. So I then made arrangements and we handed it over, and that was that was the last. It was it, it, it was nice. He had some some artifacts that he showed me again intrigued me. The family custodian in question is Colum Toland, Seamus Kavanagh's grandson, who had already been researching Seamus's life when he got the call about the diary. No one knew that this existed at all, and he showed me this little notebook, and he explained to me how. It had come into his possession. And as soon as I saw the diary, now there was no name on it, but inside in the first few pages was a list of numbers. And I recognised five or six of the numbers as being the convict numbers of Seamus Kavna as he had been about different jails. It is Derry Jail 156. Derry. Uh, Richmond. L3. L3, Lewis, Lewis 152C, Woking, 284C, WO, 936A, HO, 316269. Well, the first thing that, that really convinced me that it was Seamus Cavanagh's line here, which is, Frongoch, 1596, Hot 10, on all of the address on the, of all the postcards, that were sent to Seamus Kavanagh, that was the address. So we knew exactly that this belonged to him. So It just shows you it takes someone to realise the value of something like that. You know, 50 years after it was written and then another 50 years later it's, it, it's, it's returned to the, the grandson of the person. It filled in a huge gap in the story that I was researching. You know, like I knew the fact, this is, I think, what they called, you know, who asked. This is the man himself. And the man himself is Seamus Kavanagh. He was born in 1879, went to the Brow of the Hills School with the Christian Brothers, where he discovered a passion for the Irish language that he cultivated throughout his life. By the time he turned 18, Seamus had very few options ahead of him. A lot of men didn't have a lot of economic opportunities because the industry that, that drove Derry was shirt-making. And it's a predominantly female-employed industry. You know, the famous factory girls of Derry. Um, so male employment opportunities were, were few and far between. Um, and there was a lot of surplus labour. It was a, an economic choice to go and join the army. 
Seamus Kavanagh joined the British Army in 1897 and served in India, South Africa and Egypt. I don't know if you, if you ever heard all these old songs, but you know, it's seven years since I had a sweetheart. You signed up for seven years in the colours, which meant in the army, and then five years in the reserve. So that made up the 12 years of your service when you joined the army. If you were abroad, when your first five, seven years were up, you had to stay. <laughs> you couldn't leave, just leave the war. You had to stay there until the war, until the war was over. India was the jewel in the crown. It was wealthy. All these, everybody wanted a share in India. They served up on Peshawar or North Pakistan on the Afghan border fighting against the local tribesmen. The fight, most of the serious fighting was over when the second regiment of the Inniskillings, Seamus Cavanagh's regiment, arrived in Peshawar. Yeah. Like, most men don't talk about wars when they come home. That's, I think it's a, quite a standard thing. But he told a few stories, and one of them, which my mother related, was that he had seen British soldiers put children into cannons and shoot them out of them. Do you know, like it goes beyond comprehension why people would do that. But now the story, that's the story he told, why he would lie or why he would change, I don't know, but that's the story. Seamus Kavanagh was then sent to South Africa. This was the Boer War. The policy that the British government and the British military pursued in South Africa was appalling, to say the least. They couldn't defeat the Boers militarily. They interned the women and children, and they interned thousands of them. This was, their, I think, the original internment camps. There was no idea of hygiene, of sanitation, of proper food, and, and thousands and thousands of women and children died that, you know, in the camps. Now, he was in South Africa when these camps were at, at their height. So uh, there's no doubt that he saw, you know, the really sordid side of empire. And it had a huge influence on his attitude to uh, Britain after that. Whatever happened there, his whole attitude changed. One of the things that my mother always said that he recognised quite clearly that the policies that the British used in South Africa to keep control were exactly the same as the policies they used in Ireland. And this was the beginning of his political education, as it were. From India and South Africa and then on to Egypt, the happy-go-lucky boy who joined the British Army was now an army veteran at the age of just 25. What awaited him in Derry when he returned home in 1904? Dr Adrian Grant. Derry in 19, early 1900s was very similar to Derry in the 1950s in that there were charges of discrimination in local 
government employment uh, and charges of gerrymandering of the bog side, for example. And Derry was a was a nationalist majority city at that time, and yet was controlled by a unionist uh, city council or corporation. But when you get in then to that period of 1911 and the 1912, those local issues become tied up with the whole debate about home rule. And immediately then Derry becomes the epicentre of tension, really, in Ireland. There was fear of a civil war between 1912 and 1914. And because Derry was potentially on that, where that border might have been, tensions between unionists and nationalists in the city began to become very, very intense. There was a lot of violence. As tensions in Derry were building over these years, Seamus happened upon a kindred spirit in Sarah Coyle. Sarah Coyle was working in Derry. They met up and they married in the cathedral. And they always were proud of the fact that they were married in Irish, through the Irish language, and that they were the first two pioneers, (laughs) non-drinkers, who were uh, married in the cathedral. So that is the type of people they were, conservative, nationalist, Gaelic-speaking people. And uh, they carried on like that all through their life. Sarah Coyle, Sarah Kavanagh went through an awful rough life uh, during the revolutionary period, but she was always totally committed to the the cause, to Irish independence. Conservative, Gaelic-speaking, nationalist pioneers. Seamus and Sarah seemed well-matched. Sarah was a keen singer and they both loved to dance. In fact, their home was renowned for big nights of music and song, but with no alcohol in sight. As we get into 1911, 13, things start to get out of control to such an extent that it was, uh, that it was identified as the place most likely where a civil war would kick off in Ireland. Weekend riots between people killed at that time in street violence, mainly between constitutional nationalists and the unionists and the, the what later became the IRA and the Irish volunteers as we know from sort of 1916 on they were sort of in the background uh, they would have been pro-home rule but obviously wanting it as a stepping stone towards a greater level of independence um, and it seems that Seamus would have been in that camp who was in favour of much a much greater level of independence than home rule would have granted. Seamus Kavanagh had been officer commanding of the Irish Volunteers in Derry since 1914, but it is the events of the Easter Rising in 1916 that brings us to the mysterious notebook. Derry is like probably many other places in that um, there was a non-rising. Most people would have followed the the constitutional path of John Redmond, uh, and many, many of those people would have gone and joined the British Army and and fought in the First World War under the the idea that, that that was the best way to to guarantee home rule, but there were others like 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 Seamus who um, who continued on on the the, the more sort of radical path. Uh, a small number of people, uh, I think it's important to add as well. And um, there was no mass Republican movement in Derry. The rebellion in Derry didn't take place. The volunteers gathered at the top of William Street and a barn, and they stayed there for twelve or fifteen hours. The combination of a lack of communication with headquarters because the British had taken control of the telegraph. Owen McNeil's countermanding order led to a lot of confusion, so the expression was that they stood down. 
by Thursday, the British had started to round up as many Sinn Féin supporters, uh, activists as they could. Derry Jail was the centre for where they were taken, and that's where the diary takes up the story then. May 1916, arrested at about 1.45pm when going back to work, taken to Bishop Street, dressed in prison clothes and placed in cell, no charge stated, refused any communication with outside. 5th of May, visited by chaplain. 6th of May, went to confession. We we have lost all that generation of people, so that first-hand witness has gone. But this is a first-hand witness, written in Seamus Cavanagh's own hand. 8th of May, handed over to military escort and taken handcuffed to railway station. 23 prisoners, about 80 in escort. Received sandwich at Portadown, arrived Dublin. Marched, still in irons, through the city. Halted for short rest in Trinity College and then proceeded to Richmond. Irons removed and we were then placed in gym. Given two water biscuits and camp kettle of tea placed in room. Some old corned beef tins were used for drinking. Issued with one blanket and divided into squads. Went to barrack rooms. I was unluckily separated from dairymen here. Probably at the time, it's so detailed and so minute that it was written, probably written at that time. So we're getting a feel for what was happening to the prisoners as they were moved about. First week, food. Six biscuits and 12-ounce canned beef and pint of alleged tea morning and evening. On third day, two rotten spuds per man was added. All dairymen except Captain Fox and I were deported with draft to Wakefield, England. Sentries were ordered to shoot anyone who could be seen by them from Barrack Yard. 19th. Left Richmond and proceeded to North Wall. One party to Glasgow and Leith and ours to Hollyhead. They, they didn't know where they were going and I don't think the British authorities really knew what to do with them. They spread all these prisoners out through Jay's Leeds, Wormwood uh, Scrubs, Woking, Lewis, all over Britain. At Hollyhead Station saw First Union Jack since Easter Monday. All British flags were kept out of sight in Ireland. 20th. Arrived at Lewis in Sussex. Prison treatment and diet again. 23rd. Complained that we had been herded with cattle and sheep on the boat. He promised inquiry as also regarding the reception of newspapers, books, etc. from outside. 24th. Permission to receive papers, books or parcels of food, clothing, etc. from outside granted. For me, that's a key part of the diary, is the, the humanism of it, where they're, they're talking about how they're being treated, what the food's like. And the objectivity in some senses where they would acknowledge if there's a new governor that conditions have improved or if they had if they had a protest and conditions improved, they would actually say that, you know. So that that's an interesting characteristic. It's not just a piece of propaganda. But obviously that the reason for that is that it was written as a, a as a personal diary, as a as an aid to, to memory, I suppose, in the future. Twenty fifth. Smoking aloud, also conversing during exercise time. Knives, forks and spoons issued, and brush and comb diet also improved. When we when we consider history from a vantage point of a hundred years later, the the things that we 
deemed to be important now might have seemed mundane then. Um, and, and particularly from a social history perspective, it's that everyday stuff that, that, that historians, a lot of historians are really interested in, myself included. Divine service. Priest did not arrive until afternoon. Reason, he was not aware that we had arrived. They can't hide their hatred of the church. Of course, the war is for the freedom of the Catholic Church. Sunday, no mass. Evening service at 3.30. Monday 28th, Nelly came to see me today and was allowed in twice. Uh, there's constant reference when he's, when, he, when he's taken to whether mass has been said, whether there's a priest available for confessions. It takes up a far uh, greater part of the diary than you, you might expect. You might have thought that was kind of incidental, but it became a kind of uh, point of principle. And that's probably, again, is probably a feature of the period uh, in terms of how religious they all were, or, or the majority of them were, I suppose, at, at, at that stage. Four men were confined in cells in B4, writing complaints. They were not charged nor notified of the supposed offence. Cells were unoccupied for a long time previous, evil-smelling apparently from a broken sewer passing underneath, and were infested with rats. By some mistake, we were taken to church. No priest turned up, so we said a rosary in Irish. There are a number of postcards from his wife back to him. Like the men were in prison, the women and the children suffered. <laughs> you know, that was really, it's a part of the story that's not really emphasised all the time, you know. And this is this tells you just how they were living and how you know that was tough, Un unconsciously too. They, they weren't leaving a record specifically. They were this was their day to day conversation. Postcards were the email of the or the texts of the early early twentieth century, and that's what we're picking up now. Dear husband, just a few lines. Hope you get these pipes all right this time, that they don't get broke. Young Shimus says you get too many raisins in your bread. I might give him some of them to eat. Well, I wish you all sorts of joy eating it, but I would rather be beside you and making the tea for you from your own wee girl, S. Kavanagh. I was in luck. Pipes and tobacco arrived from home today. 16th. A draft of 30 left for Wales. The rest to move tomorrow. 18th. No mass today. Nothing like Christianity. 1st of July. Left Lewis. Arrived in walking detention barracks. Left today and went to Wales. Frongoch camp. Received notice of internment. Number 1596. My number in camp. Placed in number 10 hut. Mr James Kavanagh, Irish prisoner of war. 1596 Frongoch camp. Dear husband, hope you got the other parcel I sent. Just a line to let you know we're all in the best of health. Hoping you're enjoying the same blessing. I think it very odd to hear so little from you, but I suppose you cannot help it at all. I'm not so bad as others. The Dordies have had no news for two weeks. If it was that long, I'd think it terrible. The best love from your loving wife and children, S. Kavanagh. 85 left today for London. I heard at the station that all the dairy ones have gone home from the S. Camp, except the Dordies. Dear Seamus, excuse me for not writing sooner. But I expected you home long ago. All well at home. Hope you are the same. Five of the boys are here and we all want to see you. 2nd of August. Doherty's and McKenna 
go this evening, and I'm the last of our crowd here. Mr. James Kavanagh, Irish Prisoner of War, 1596 Frongock Camp. This is what the station will be like when you're back. Don't you think you and I could take a step with him yet? We are getting in a good form for dancing. From your wife, Sarah Kavanagh. Third, I'm off myself tonight. 32 of us travelling via Hollyhead and Kingstown. Fourth, we crossed over last night in the SS Leinster. Calm night. And as we sighted the old land again, we sang a few of our own songs. What matter? What is our destiny there? Ireland is Ireland through joy and through tears. Some common girls at the pier to welcome us. They guided us Northmen across the city and pointed out what they call the scars of glory. Got train at 9am. Arrived ported down at 11.15, reaching Derry at 3pm. But the spirit still lives on, the man Seamus Kavanagh returns from Frongok in 1916 and as part of an effort to reorganise the volunteers in Derry. He remains officer commanding in the city until 1920 and is name-checked in accounts from the time as being part of actions like drills, parades and the collection of arms. Dr. Adrian Grant. It's not, uh, it's not un- unheard of or it's not strange for someone to kind of drop off the record from 1916 to 1920. Uh, after 1916, you know, things calmed down quite significantly. Um, you know, the nationalist movement remained very, very strong. But then there was a, the Patrick Pierce coming of Sinn Féin was set up in the city and people like Seamus and, and, and others would have driven their energies into that. Most of the country was like that, um, probably until 1920. In 1919, after the first dialment, you had the, the Solihadbeg ambush, which is seen as, as being you know the, 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 the attack that started the War of Independence. But there was a long period where not much happened after that. So it was only really in 1920 that, that the IRA campaign really really kicked off, and particularly in Ulster and in, in a city like Derry, your, the IRA would have been operating in the context not only of a really heavy police presence, but also an army presence, like Derry had Ebrington Barracks. It was one of the most heavily policed cities in Ireland. And then you also have an extremely loyal population, the Unionist section of the population. And then another section of, of the Catholic um, people would have been still in favour of the, the John Redmond type moderate nationalism. You can begin to understand then why someone like Seamus would drop off the, the radar on, in terms of the official record. As both a veteran of the British Army and long-standing OC in Derry of what was now the Irish Republican Army, Seamus Kavanagh at 40 years of age is what some younger men referred to as an old-timer. There were people like Seamus and uh, and Johnny Shields and others uh, in Derry at that time who were the leading Republican figures, who'd uh, who were a bit longer in the tooth. You know, they'd been around, they'd seen the violence of the nineteen twelve to fourteen period. They'd also seen nineteenth century riots in Derry, and they knew what could happen if things got out of control. You know, if there were demonstrations on the streets, if there were riots, they could quickly escalate. Um, so there was a moderation, I think, in that middle-aged generation of, of IRA volunteers like Seamus. 
1920, Seamus Kavanagh is arrested again in Derry, which brings us back to the diary. Seamus's grandson, Colm Toland. And they were in Derry jail, there was about 100 Republican prisoners. And they, took out, they marked out the six leading Republicans and they offered them special status. You know, they could wear their own clothes and get visitors. But they wouldn't give it to anybody and the rest of them. So like this was to split the leaders away from the, the rest of them. So that's the, they were then sent to Wormwood Scrubs. So this, I'll just read this out to you now. Stated that we would accept, that we would, we would accept privileges under condition. Such terms included all prisoners, but declined any exceptional terms for ourselves. The six above named order to pack up and leave prison. At office found police and military escort to conduct us to London, placed in B36. Only one other Northman here, O'Doherty Straban. Treatment extra good. Home Secretary England says we can have any privileges as he only wishes to keep us out of Ireland. Declare hunger strike for unconditional release, living or dead. Last entry in the diary is meeting being held outside the prison, music, songs and clamour. Now, that ties on very neatly with uh, newspaper reports of, of the time that outside Wormwood Scrubs there were demonstrations. There were Irish people, Republicans, supporting Republican prisoners and there were English people and there were riots and the Irish people who were singing and had bands and things like that and there were the police had to be brought in too and that, that's the last entry. Like he was taken to hospital about two days after that. And the hunger strike was used very, very effectively by the IRA uh, and by Republicans generally. Uh, it was something that was seen as being effective, not only for lessening your term of imprisonment, but for drawing attention to your cause. Now, he didn't last very long. He lasted for about two weeks, in which case he, and he collapsed and he was in danger of dying. So he was released into a St James's Infirmary in London and there's a famous photograph of him taken, recovering Seamus Kavanagh, recovering after hung in St James's Infirmary from a hunger strike. The photograph is of Seamus Kavanagh recovering in the hospital bed and laying across the sheet is a belt that he fashioned in Frongoch in 1916. And that image is just one of those sort of, you know, if it, if it had been a different time and and, a, and and maybe a different context, it would have been like an iconic image of a, of a hunger striker and holding this commemorative belt that he'd made. This is the belt here, so it has... Now, and you can see there that it has... Shocked in the Casca, 1916, Easter week, 1916. Now, I, that, that's been in our family for over 100 years now, and... I have looked at seen it 101 times, but there was a television programme called National Treasures and it came round the country. So I took this up to Belfast. So one of the experts came over and he looked at it and he says, you see the two flags here that are crossed? And that's a tricolour already. And he says, that, that's the Boer flag. <laughs> so like you had this 
thing that this soldier who had fought against the Boers in South Africa was now a supporter <laughs> of the Boers. So like that's, the, you know, and that's what, you know, shows that his politics had flipped right over 180 degrees so they had. That period in his life changed him completely from being what would have been a happy-go-lucky boy joining the British Army to being a political animal almost. And you know that journey that he went on from the late 19th century to the 1920s is kind of all summed up in that one image? The, the, the Republican prisoners who were in hunger strike all over Britain, they were, they were just sending them out to hospitals and there was a standoff then between the medical authorities and the military authorities. The doctors wouldn't let police into the hospitals because these people were not convicted criminals. So the police had to stay outside. One Sunday, 80 of the Irish prisoners in hospitals all over London got up, walked out and went home. And that, like, it just, that's, there was nobody to stop them. That was on a Sunday afternoon. Oh, the, the, the newspapers were all complaining about it and what happened and how did all these escape, you know, but that's how they got away. So Seamus Kavanagh makes his way home in 1920, when there are accounts of some fierce fighting in the city. The Wormwood Scrubs entry is the last one in the diary about his incarcerations. The little notebook that found its way home through Michael Gallagher, Adrian Grant and some serendipity is a remarkable record of his experience and also reflects the story of so many others across the island in the times in which it was written. The Government of Ireland Act was late 1920, which provided the mechanism or the means for, a, for two parliaments and two governments to be set up on the island of Ireland. The Northern Ireland Parliament met for the first time in the spring when an official state opened in, in the summer of 1921. Um, and from that point on then, the Northern Ireland government um, begins to sort of develop its own ideas of what it needs. In 1921, Seamus Kavanagh is arrested again and taken to Ballykinler internment camp in County Down that housed nearly 2,000 prisoners between 1920 and 21. There was a much-loved chaplain in the place. And when he went to leave, a few of the Sinn Féin organisers got together a, a book and every prisoner wrote his name on it. And that's the only record they have of who was really of who was in Ballykinler. Only complete record. Seamus had now experienced the war of empire abroad and actively engaged in the fight for independence. He has been captured and taken by cattle boat to England to be interned in various prisons around the country. He had been on hunger strike in London and made his way home to Derry, where there is constant unrest and threat of violence. Now, after a full year in Ballykinler internment camp, the worst was yet to come. In May 1922, Seamus Kavanagh was seized again and ended up on the prison ship Argenta. The Argenta and, and that period of, of internment is an interesting one as well because it, it coincides with a massive crackdown from the Northern Ireland government. Throughout the early part of 1922, there's really, really intense violence. The treaty had been signed and passed, and Northern Ireland had opted out of that. Um, and there had been agreements between uh, Michael Collins and James Craig, called the Craig-Collins Pacts. And that was a, an attempt to, to bring peace to the island. Collins, you know, was being diplomatic, diplomatic in public, playing the statesman. But behind the scenes, he was planning an invasion of the North. 
um, with you know, IRA who had been amassing on the border, places like Donegal. The plan was at least to invade the north, and they called it the, the Northern Offensive. Uh, and once the Civil War broke out, that was the end of the kind of the northern um, the northern question, I suppose, you know, as a, as a, as a thing to unite. So Seamus being interned April, May is, is part of that timeline because the big invasion was supposed to take place in May. And when it kind of became a damn squib, the security forces of the Northern Ireland state just cracked down super heavily then on the IRA. It was like, right, now's the time to defeat them. And defeat them, they did. Like, there's no two ways about it. The Northern IRA was completely defeated in April, May, and the June 1922. And he was among the first people lifted. And they were taken, first of all, to, well, to Derry Jail. And they sent them on then to the Argenta. It was a wooden-hulled ship built on a steel frame. And it was unseaworthy. That was why they got it so cheaply. First they anchored it in Belfast Loch, then to Larne Harbour. And it stayed open until 1924. The men were actually in cages. There was supposedly a stove in every cage, but they burned anthracite. And the men were below decks, and they they were afraid of being suffocated, you know, poisoned with carbon monoxide. So they wouldn't light the stoves, or they couldn't light the stoves. Food was bad, you know, like it really was a dreadful, dreadful setup altogether. He was in there for two years, mid-22, 23, and he was in there until almost the end of 24. But the Northern Ireland government didn't want to release them without condition. So the, the, at the start they said, like, you know, we'll, we'll give you release if you, put a, if you post a bond of £50, which was a huge amount of money, and you sign a document document to say that you'll say in Derry that you won't cross between A and B and you report to the police station every day. And nobody took that up. Uh, by all accounts, the Argenta seemed to be a grim, grim place to be. Um, you know, compared to prisons and internment camps and that that had gone before. And the resolve of the people who were there, you know, the political resolve was admirable in some ways because they were given the opportunity to walk out if they signed a signed a form to say they wouldn't reoffend or whatever it was, or wouldn't join a subversive organisation again. Uh, and there were many of them, uh, you know, including Seamus, who, who refused to who refused to do that. Um, and it's just a, a sign of the, the political convictions that, that many of them showed before that and continu- continued to show after it. I have great correspondence from Seamus Kavanagh saying, no, I'm a free man, I'm here without trial, I will only be released unconditionally. And eventually, the last entry in his file is released unconditionally. <laughs> it was just like, you know. The last offer they made him was if he put a, posted a bond of £10. And he said, no. <laughs> like he was just, he was like, like uh, my mother described him as a tran man. <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to break. Seamus Kavanagh came out of the Argenta a free man, at the age of 45. He had been a British soldier, an Irish volunteer, an OC throughout the War of Independence, a political activist and committed ideologue. His term in the Argenta had taken its toll, 
and he now used a wheelchair to get around. It's really easy to forget the trauma of that period of time where you had the First World War and the death and destruction that went along with that. You would have had telegrams being delivered into people's letterboxes every day of the week with deaths in the family. Violent death or sudden death or unexpected death almost became a part of life. The war comes to an end and then you've got the Spanish flu. Thousands and thousands of people dying. And then you're into the war of independence, violence, death, imprisonment. By the time you get to the 20s, there's a collective trauma in society. And it didn't have the kind of recognition that we would maybe have today of what the effects of trauma can be. You know, imprisonment was was a, a common thing for, for people who were in, in that world. Um, whether it was for a few weeks, a few months, or you know, an, an accumulated number of years, as in the case of Seamus. Seamus settled down but remained active in the community, teaching Irish and writing the occasional letter to the local newspaper. Again, he wrote a paper to the, uh, sorry, a letter to the Derry Journal, you know, condemning what he called the Jazzites, those people who listen to jazz. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very conservative, like, you know, very Catholic, Irish. I have somewhere around there, I have a medal when he was in the British Army from the British Army Temperance Association. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, and that it must have been an experience in his youth of drink or some maybe drink in the family or something like that, you know, but he, he was death and drink. At the beginning of the Second World War, internment was once again in full flow and the Kavanaugh home was a constant target of raids when the house would be turned upside down. And just before Seamus and Sarah moved out of the city in 1939, five years before Seamus passed away, their two sons, Donal and Dermot were both arrested and held like their father had been for years. What they'll do is they'll take the two boys, take them into Derry Jail, give them a hammering and let them out again. You know, I want him to took them in and didn't let them out in 1939-40. And they kept them there until 1946. Yeah, they were in another prison ship called the Alrada in Belfast Law. And there's a there's another twist on it. When he died, he died in 1944, and when he died in 1944, they sent a telegram to the prison, to the authorities, and they wrote a letter. And it was about a month later that somebody, some dairyman, other dairyman, got an old copy of the Dairy Journal, and says, "Is your name Kavanagh? There's a man here, Kavanagh died. Is he any relation to yours? It was their father. They didn't tell them. And like you know that that's." That's how they found out. So, like, it's a, it's, a, it's a long story, so it is. It's a long story that echoes for many through the 20s and 40s and 50s, and one that Colm's mother, Isabel, Seamus's daughter, documented in a journal, much the same way that her father had. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just read this bit out here. Before I was born, my father was in the old IRA. Now, some of it's not quite accurate, but it was in the old IRA and was a commanding officer in Derry in 1916. Due to bad commands, the people in the north were not informed of the date of the rising in 1916. But when it was all over, the known IRA throughout the country, hundreds of them, were rounded up and interned, jailed without trial. Aher was in Derry jail and Wormwood scrubs in London. 
and from Gach in Wales. He also was on the prison ship Argenta. Altogether, he was away for five years. He went on hunger strike in London for a few weeks, but was released into a hospital. While all this was going, Wahar was at home with five children, with no means for support, except from people who were collecting money and gave some each week to prisoners' families. My childhood was a very happy one. I was spoiled being the baby. My childhood was a very happy one. I was spoiled being the baby. I can remember being the centre of attention. Ahar was a very caring and carried me around. I really loved him and until the day he died. You know, it really is the part of the untold story, like, you know, that from more or less from, we say, from maybe 19, well, on and off from 1916, right up, well, 24, he finally got out of prison, but he was a semi-invalid. So, like, at that time, his wife was working and, and looking after children, you know, and all the rest of it. She had a rough life, you know. But, like, a, a life and a very strange conversation. Myself and my mother and my grandmother had at one time at home. My mother said to, 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 my, to, to her mother, like, why did you marry a man? that you knew was going to end up in this situation. And she said, we talked about this. And I married him on the condition that it was God first, Ireland second, and me and the family third. And that's the condition that I took him. (laughs) Which is... Like that was her, this was not, I think this was actually discussed and this was the, how they married. And I will keep them fresh beside my breast, though all the world should fall. Rebel Prisoner was a Raw Nerve production produced by Otto Schlindwein and was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.